Hello, my name is Thomas. Welcome to this edition of British Culture, Albion Never Dies. Thank you for everybody who listened to uh, the first episode in this series, which was A is for Albion. Um, I mentioned in that that I'd been a little bit unwell, and quite a few people messaged me to say, get well soon, and I got well soon. So, thank you very much. I then put out um, just a shout-out on Instagram in my stories and said, okay, A is for Albion. What's B for? And I had a few ideas myself as to what it should stand for. Thank you to absolutely everybody who messaged me. B is for bloody hell. <laughs> that was overwhelmingly the most popular answer, but I was genuinely surprised at some of the answers I got. So rather than devoting this podcast to just one of those answers, as I say, there are so many good ones uh, from so many people, I thought I might just run through uh, all the different Bs, starting with the first one that I received from Jason Kim. Uh, thank you very, very much for messaging me. You can find him on Instagram at jasxon88. Jason uh, messaged me and said, Barber and Bellstaff jackets. Um, which is something I wouldn't really have thought of. I haven't really gone into men's clothing. That is a big part of, I guess, British culture, or at least what people outside the UK have seen of British culture. Because, of course, you know, it's the English traditional dress is the man suit, which has become very, very commonplace around the world. Uh, there's very few countries I've been to where people men don't own some kind of gentleman's suit. Um, but Barber, of course... I'm not going to go into the history of it, that's been covered elsewhere, but my own experience growing up in semi-rural places in the UK is that it was a farmer's jacket, it was hard-wearing, it was durable, it would last for a decade or two or three or four. <laughs> Young farmers would buy one, uh, or have one given to them, and then it would just last them much of their working lives, maybe being patched up or resprayed, but they were incredibly durable. Uh, I know it came to a lot of people's attention in, what, 2012's James Bond film Skyfall, where he wears one. And again, he's supposed to be, you know, minor landowner, you know, maybe asset-rich, cash-poor, a very recognisable type, and just the type of person who would wear uh, a barber jacket, sensibly removing the bright yellow label, uh, since he's going to be fighting at night and doesn't want <laughs> that as a target on him. Bellstaff jackets, of course, uh, are similarly hard-wearing jackets. And he later messaged me and said that Barracuda... Uh, were also one of his favourite jackets. Uh, they designed like the light cotton jacket, often known as the, the Harrington, originally known as the G9, uh, which gained incredible popularity with US servicemen coming to the UK during the Second World War, and then they would buy one, take it back, and it became popular with people uh, like Elvis Presley. Of course, Harrington is named after a character in the American uh, soap opera, Peyton Place. Uh, but becoming popular among that group, it then got into American pop culture and got kind of re-imported to the UK among mods and skinheads in the 60s, 70s. Um, so it's kind of interesting, although there's a UK thing originally, it wasn't until it became a big thing in US pop culture that it was then uh, a big part of UK culture again. It's kind of interesting how it builds and builds. And of course, James Bond wearing one in Quantum of Solace, uh, that one from Tom Ford. So again, England does have a surprising reach for fashion. If I, if I think of fashion, I think of, you know, say Italy, or I think of France, uh, but for street fashion, like what most people would actually wear, it's surprising the influence uh, that the United Kingdom has had. So that was B is for Barber, B is for Bellstaff, B is for Barracuda. It's Jonah Davis on Instagram messaged me and said, B is for Brownsea Island. And that had me stopping and thinking, Brownsea Island? The place where the Boy Scouts started. And I had a quick search, yes, and I had a quick chat, yes. Brownsea Island is where Robert Baden-Powell, a British hero at the time, took 
a small group of boys on a camping trip to teach them all kinds of skills that he believed all boys should learn so that every man could have. That was in 1907. And it was just a little trip, a very, very successful trip. And as I say, he was a great English hero uh, from his actions in the Boer War. Um, and this was a war, frankly, with not many heroes on either side. But he had done uh, great service to the country at the Siege of Mafeking, uh, essentially holding out against a very strong force. And again, just a national hero, taking boys out. He was concerned because the UK was becoming the first country in the world to be predominantly urban dwelling. You know, in all of human history until now, most humans had been farmers. We'd had towns and cities and so on, but most people lived in the countryside. With the Great Industrial Revolution, most people started living in the big cities, and that meant certain skills were being lost. So suddenly you start recruiting soldiers from the cities, take them out to the countryside, and you have the first generation of soldiers who kind of don't know what to do with all this green, and don't know how to survive, don't know how to wash in the field. So he wanted really to teach practical skills to young boys, and also get them physically active. They were noticing that even though the country was becoming more and more prosperous, people were not becoming physically stronger, quite the opposite. Uh, so again, he was pushing for that and produced a book the next year. So 1907 is when he took the boys out for the trip to Brownsea Island. 1908, he published the book Scouting for Boys, and that is thought to be one of the most influential books in history. It started the Boy Scout movement, and within a few years, 1910, he would retire so he could be a full-time scout leader and really push for the education of boys, not just in a schooling sense, but in a sense of life. And this, of course, has traveled throughout the world, uh, so it's a joy for me walking down Kowloon on one of the main streets. You've got Baden-Powell House, um, and you can see it's one of the major scout centers. He even went out there. Uh, to visit. It's a wonderful going around their little museum. It's a big part of my childhood and a big part of many, many British people's childhood. And it all starts with just a little camping trip with a group of boys. The chief scout now is Bear Grylls, of course, former SAS uh, soldier who has become internationally famous for his survival programs. Um, but it is still a huge organisation which I think does a great deal of good. So thank you to it's Jonah Davis. I think... Uh, yeah, if you want to know more about Britishness, I think almost anything related to Robert Baden-Powell uh, would be a good window into Britishness. And the book Scouting for Boys is a classic. It's still great today. I had a few more people messaging me uh, other words beginning with B that I don't wish to read out. <laughs> I think blimey is one that I'm willing to do. I've never heard someone say blimey in all... Okay, genuine meaning. It's supposed to be an expression of surprise, but I think even my parents would use that uh, in a joking session. It's so old-fashioned. But I guess it is old-fashioned, but also very British. I've never heard of people from outside the UK saying blimey. If you're an Australian, New Zealander, South African, if you're from anywhere in the world and you say blimey, in all seriousness, let me know about this. <laughs> I am very, very curious. I did have... Uh, Roland Hume, um, the, the writer, messaged me and asked, what about banter? Banter is a big part of, I guess, lads' culture in the UK, or was, um, and it's something that has been debated quite a lot. The BBC even did uh, uh, did an article on whether <laughs> banter should be banned. 
Um, so according to the Oxford English Dictionary, it's to make fun of a person, to hold someone up to ridicule. I think it's something that's done very much in a friendly way between friends. Uh, one of those things where you might say something to your friend, you're making fun of him, but you wouldn't want it out of context. It probably wouldn't look good on the internet. I know the lad Bible is probably full of this kind of thing. <laughs> but it is definitely a very, a very British thing. I see it in a British office. Uh, some Americans say, but you're so mean to each other. So mean about your towns. You call each other peasants. <laughs> I call them peasants. Um, so, yeah, definitely a big part of British culture. And a few people message me asking me uh, if I talk about Brexit. Um, and I thought long and hard about it, and uh, nah. <laughs> nah, I can't be bothered. Um, quite frankly. Um, it is an interesting topic, but I think a lot of people have heard enough on this, and, and certainly I have. <laughs> One of the curious ones was um, British Bond addict uh, messaged me and said, how about bunting? Um, so again, a lot of people, you, you've seen Skyfall, there's the lady who says to M, you'll forgive me for not putting up the bunting. Um... So what is bunting? It definitely exists in the United States, uh, and it's one of those things where, you know, there's a blog called Separated by a Common Language, and it's observations on British and American English by an American linguist in the UK, as a Brit in the US. Now, uh, yeah, I'm starting to see this more and more and more, even more than when I was in a mixed office uh, in China, mixed UK, US, Canadian, and so on. Um, so I believe what we call... Um, Bunting in the US is simply a string of flags. Um, or it might be a string of pennants if they're triangular. Um, I Personally, if someone said bunting, I would go with either. I think I've had both. I'd be more inclined to say it's the, the triangular flags, whereas bunting, when I've seen it in the US, I was here at 4th of July, and I saw a lot of the things where it's uh, a semicircle with stripes of red, white, and maybe a blue stripe with some stars. But it's not the American flag, it's just the theme colours. Um, so I think that's a big difference uh, in, our, in our phrasing of it. But again, I'd really direct you to the Separated by Common Language blog, because uh, it's pretty cool. And again, it's just one of those little differences between the UK and the US. I definitely have seen a lot of bunting in my time and put it up and taken it down. <laughs> Going to things that are very, very British, well, history. I think a lot of British culture we would understand through our history. We're taught a lot in school, and I remember Stephen Fry saying in one of his long talks, one of the big differences between the UK and the US is in bookshops. So in the UK, going into any bookshop, I expect to see a very, very significant history section, um, potentially a whole floor in a, in a larger bookshop. A huge part of that would probably be Second World War, then First World War, then maybe everything else. But nonetheless, I expect a huge section on history. Stephen Fry said that was not so common in the US, that you're more likely to see a massive self-help section. Um, and I've been at a few bookshops here recently, maybe not as many as I'd like to, but I've seen that largely borne out, and I'm wondering if that's simply on the West Coast. There's listeners on the East Coast who are tearing their hair out and saying, no, that's not true at all. Um, don't tear your hair out. But I'm very curious, is this something that's true? Is it a, a generalism? Um, is it a true generalism? So certainly I've seen a lot more history books in the UK, even though like living in California you might say, well, it's a young country and so on, but between the Spanish, um, the Spanish trying to Christianize the locals, between the Spanish military, between the wars between Spain, uh, sorry, Mexico and the United States, uh, the more modern settlement, you know, 
going to the moon. There's been quite a lot happening here in quite a short space of time. Um, so I'm, I'm always interested in, in why there isn't more. I mean, I've seen the US focus a bit on Second World War and maybe the American Civil War. But there seems to be quite a lot more uh, that could be written about. Again, maybe I'm just not going to the right places. Maybe I'm not going to the right bookshops. But because, I say, in the UK we focus a lot on our history... And some British people would say that, you know, we've got a great sense of humour, although personally I found that being said in every single country. I've heard Saudi say, the great thing about Saudi Arabia is we have a good sense of humour. Uh, and I certainly think the Turks have a fantastic sense of humour. Uh, but Britain, you know, a lot of British people would say we have a great sense of humour. And so things like Blackadder, uh, thank you Pete Brooker from Taylor's of Love for suggesting B is for Blackadder, that is something I think most British people enjoy. Most British people who I know and like. <laughs> <laughs> it was written by, uh, I believe, the nephew of a very serious historian who was himself a comedian, and so it's very the dovetailing of history and comedy. Blackadder himself is a man played by uh, Mr. Bean um, in, in a speaking role, and he is, a, I guess, an evil, scheming character living among the great and the good of history. It's an unusual comedy series in that uh, it's not consecutive, they're different eras, it's different generations of Blackadder family. Um, so I'd really pick it up from, I don't know, maybe Blackadder III. I really like the one that was set in the Elizabethan era, uh, which had Miriam Margos as uh, Queen Elizabeth I, but I know that most people gravitate to Blackadder Goes Forth, which was set in the First World War, and really, really drove home the, the trench conditions in France, but through comedy. Um, here's a little clip from Blackadder. Permission to ask a question, sir? Permission granted, Baldrick, as long as it isn't the one about where babies come from. <laughs> no, the thing is, the way I see it, these days there's a war on, right? And ages ago there wasn't a war on, right? So there must have been a moment when there not being a war on went away, right? and there being a war on, came along. So, what I want to know is, how did we get from the one case of affairs to the other case of affairs? Do you mean, how did the war start? <laughs> yeah. The war started because of the vile Hun and his villainous empire building. George, the British Empire at present covers a quarter of the globe. While the German Empire consists of a small sausage factory in Tanganyika. <laughs> I hardly think that we can be entirely absolved from blame on the imperialistic front. Uh, oh, no. No, sir. Absolutely not. Man's a bicycle. <laughs> I heard that it started when a bloke called Archie Duke shot an ostrich because he was hungry. <laughs> I think you mean it started when the Archduke of Austro-Hungary got shot. There was definitely an ostrich involved. <laughs> well, possibly. But the real reason for the whole thing was that it was just too much effort not to have a war. By gum, this is interesting. I always loved history. A Battle of Hastings, Henry VIII and his six knives, all that. <laughs> you see, Baldrick, in order to prevent war in Europe, two super blocks developed. Us, the French and the Russians on one side, and the Germans and Austro-Hungary on the other. The idea was to have two vast opposing armies, each acting as the other's deterrent. That way, there could never be a war. But this is a sort of a war, isn't it, sir? Yes, that's right. You see, there was a tiny flaw in the plan. What was that, sir? It was bollocks. <laughs> so the poor old ostrich died for nothing. 
So there we go. There is the origin of the First World War, according to Blackadder. And some people would say that it was taught history was taught more to them through Blackadder than than in their schools. So we've had beers for Barber, beers for Bellstaff, beers for Barracuda, beers for Brownsea Island and Baden Powell, beers for Blimey, bloody hell, banter, Brexit. Okay, I, I skirted past it. Maybe I'll go into it later. Bunting, Blackadder. And finally, we get to uh, a very good friend of mine, Kane, who uh, I've interviewed on um, on this podcast, a deep dive into tea. Uh, he's a very, very knowledgeable fella. And he was suggesting maybe we get a two B's battle of Britain. And I know he's a very good friend of mine, so I know he was really talking about the actual historical event in 1940. Um, but I'm tempted, really, to talk about the 1969 film directed by Guy Hamilton, of course directed Goldfinger, and produced by Harry Saltzman, and had Michael Caine as one of the stars. Um, it's, a, it's normally sold as a, a dad pack, so on Father's Day <laughs> you have the, uh, the Longest Day, Battle of Britain and a Bridge Too Far, uh, common DVDs on sale back when DVDs uh, were a thing. Um, but it's a great movie which dovetails the actual history with, you know, little drama to, to, to make it a, a movie, not a documentary. But if you're not familiar, the Battle of Britain was an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, event which was Germany had taken over the whole of Western Europe in, in what, 1939, early 1940. And then, of course, the next step is to take Britain. So first of all, they needed to get air superiority, then they needed to destroy the navy, and then land. So the first battle is the Battle of the Air. And the Germans had significant advantages, controlling the whole of Europe, as they did, and attempted to destroy our air force uh, really helped of course as you'll see in the film by the polish air force who had flown over after the invasion of poland helped by the canadians and of course joined the war with us in 1939 and indeed somebody from palestine um, there's a huge number of people who did join and took part of course the overwhelming majority were british uh, so it was but it was a huge huge battle that most people could see if you lived in the south of England, you could look up in the skies and see it. Uh, if you walked along the road, you could see where the bombs had fallen as the Germans were trying to destroy initially just airfields and then switch to try and destroy our cities that were the home of manufacturing. Uh, the World at War is a documentary series I'd really recommend to anyone who hasn't seen it, as it does tell a grand story of the Second World War, but the episode on the Battle of Britain is extraordinary, and the episode on the Blitz... Um, so, again, it's, it's an extraordinary part of history, and I feel I can't do its service, really, in this podcast. Um, but as I say, for those who are not familiar, there is a film, <laughs> and you can enjoy that. Uh, filmed uh, mainly in, I think the aerial segments were done with the Spanish Air Force uh, back in the late 60s, as they were still using the same aeroplanes uh, as we used in the Second World War. Um, but it is a great film. I really recommend it. And... And as I say, I just don't feel I can do it justice unless I have a whole episode on it, or two, or three. Um, but he did also suggest I should talk about Bradford. <laughs> Bradford is a city in the UK where I've lived. Uh, I lived there for about five years, on and off. And it's one of those things where the UK is not just London. <laughs> and it's not even just London and Scotland. Like, a lot of people in the UK live in smaller towns and smaller cities. And Bradford, in that sense, is normal. It is a very small 
town. It used to be uh, an industrial town back in the Industrial Revolution. It was a wall town. Um, and if I'm thinking of bookshops, it's got the most wonderful old bookshop that was the Wool Exchange, so right in the centre of the city where people would come, for example, from Germany, all over really, but come from Germany specifically, um, to trade with the English uh, for wool. Um, and of course then it went into its huge decline and then uh, has received a, a large amount of immigration. I believe the, the city centre is uh, Muslim majority now. Um, but Bradford is a whole district starting out from the city centre, then going out to towns like Ilkley, uh, which is the kind of England that you might see. I hesitate to say Midsummer Murders because that's supposed to be south, but it's the kind of England you do see on TV. And it's perhaps the England that most people imagine of the little villages with tea shops and so on. Um, so again, I, I hesitate to go into it because Bradford's a it's a very interesting city, uh, curry capital of the north for sure, probably curry capital of the country. Um, but that gets into too many C's. And today we're focusing on B's, as I say, Barber and the other jackets, Brownsea Island, Baden-Powell. And let's have Ron Weasley give the most popular answer. Bloody hell. Bloody hell. Bloody hell. Bloody hell. <laughs> Bloody hell, Harry. Bloody hell was that all about?